Hi, you are listening to Mediation Station, and this is your host, Greg Fenton. Each week we explore topics and ideas related to the experience of people with conflict and look to promote the profession of conflict resolvers. We are available to connect with at greggf at primus.ca and 647-227-4734. Visit our Facebook page to like us and Facebook group page to become a member. You can also visit YouTube at both CHHA 1610AM and also Greg Fenton to see some videos of Mediation Station. And tonight we're talking with uh, Joel Skapinker, and it's in a state of conflict. So thanks, Joel, for coming here. You know, you're in the hood, actually. That's right. Yeah, I appreciate that. So you didn't have far to go. So how about you share a little bit of information about your background anyways? Um, I'm a lawyer. I've been a family lawyer for over 30 years. I limit my practice now to mediation, and so I'm no longer going to court. No? Why is that? Well, I've decided then from my experience that uh, the court is the worst place to resolve a conflict. Really? Right. And when did you get that realization? Well, being a slow learner, it came to me after practicing for about 25 years that uh, fighting it out and getting a court where you have a winner and a loser, uh, it takes a long time to get to that stage, a very expensive way to get to, to that stage is not the best way to resolve a conflict. There are many alternative dispute resolution methods uh, that are available besides going to court. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and you, you know, you're not the first lawyer who's come on and advocated for more collaborative processes, giving uh, an understanding that the traditional process of justice through the court system is not necessarily the most considerate of a you know decision making that could be impacting, especially in the family, you know the best interests of a child or the individuals as uh, no longer coupled together, but uh, they have to deal with the issues of divorce and property and spousal support, etc. Well, it's giving up control. It's saying the parties are saying we're unable to resolve our conflict. We have a problem, and we want somebody out there uh, to tell us what to do. And that somebody out there in court is a judge. He usually doesn't know the parties, has never met them, and has only seen them for a few hours, yet determining how they're going to be living for the rest of their lives. Yeah, which is obviously people giving over so much ownership of, of the decision-making that has a great impact on their lives. That's correct. So what is it about conflict that keeps you working with it? Well, I am still in the profession of uh, helping people, uh, being a lawyer, I'm helping, trying to help people resolve conflicts. And the way to resolve a conflict, in my view, is not to have a, a uh, forum that results in a zero-sum game. Game. By zero-sum game, I mean there's a one person's a winner and one person's a loser. There's no reason why we can't have a win-win situation, and that win-win situation is not going to result from go to court. It's going to result from some alternate dispute resolution method. A process where the individuals who are directly affected can have direct say in creating their own outcomes. That's right. I mean, for example, in a family case, the parents know the children a lot better than the judge ever will, and the parents should be able to decide the future of their child, how the child will be living, where the child will be living, mm-hmm. how often the child will be seeing the other parent. Those are not something that a judge who's never, who's never going to meet this child should decide in the... Uh, in a bare courtroom. Yeah, I mean, people don't realize, let's say in family, 
when there's an issue of the relationship ending amongst the adults, separation and divorce, and they have to deal with the issues related to that transition of relationship, so custody, access, property, people think they can bring their child to the courthouse and the judge will meet with them and they'll get to see, this is what I do for my child, and so I should be the one who is given the custody, for example. People don't just don't know the reality that you don't bring children into the court setting. That's right. Not only does a judge not meet the child, but the judge is going to be reading documents where each person is, being, is, is throwing as much mud as they can uh, at the other person and showing why they are the worst parent and the one who's writing the document is the best parent. Yeah. And, um, sometimes I think flipping a coin might be a better solution. Well, when you go to court, as you mentioned earlier, you give up total ownership of decision-making to a third party who has no vested interest in your particular, has no real understanding about the nuances of your life, yet no, they're they're compelled to make a decision. Not only that, but the judge may have five or six cases on, on his or her list that day and uh, gets to read uh, a small number of documents and yet makes a decision that affects the well-being of the entire family. Another thing about court, too, there's not just one matter scheduled at a, let's say, a start time of 10 o'clock. There's a series of different separate files that people have to go to court for, especially at the Ontario Court of Justice. So it's like a first-come, first-serve, and you may only get five minutes, you may get 15 minutes, but generally it's not longer than that. That's right, and it's, as I said, it's a, a judge is making a decision in that short time, and the parties of themselves are giving up control. Why should they give control to some, uh, he's certainly a qualified judge, but he's somebody who doesn't know this family at all. So in, in terms of your transition as a mediator from a lawyer, what is the approach that you try as a mediator when you have individuals who are going through a conflict? Well, what I, the approach that I take, um, which is not uh, really the orthodox approach, is that I like to help people and guide them to arriving at a solution. I like the parties to make their own decisions and to work out a solution that's going to be best for them. But if I found, find that the parties are floundering and uh, they're really not sure where to go, I can suggest things to them. I can tell them how other people in their situation have resolved matters, and I can suggest that they might look at those as options to resolve the case. So even though you're a lawyer, when you're a mediator, how is the role of a lawyer involved in the role of a mediator? Well, it's actually completely different because a lawyer's role is an advocate. And an advocate's role is to advocate for the position of a party, being your client. Whereas in a mediation, the mediator is not acting as a lawyer. The mediator is not giving legal advice. And the lawyer is not advocating for one of the parties. The, the mediator is attempting to create a process which will help the parties res resolve their matter. Right, so the mediator doesn't take sides as a lawyer might or would. Somebody who's independent, somebody who's not biased, somebody who gives both sides an equal opportunity to speak, and somebody who makes sure that there's an unequal bargaining power so that there's not one party who's taking advantage of the other. So when you said earlier about uh, the orthodox version, what, is, what do you mean by that? Well, the, the classical approach, if one trains as a mediator, is to say to the mediator in training, the party should arrive at their own decision and you shouldn't uh, tell them what to do, and you shouldn't help them in getting to where they want to go. But I've, as I said, what I found is is that people are coming 
to mediation services offer not only to um, obtain a process so that they can resolve, resolve their matter, but they're looking for guidance. And having been a lawyer for over 30 years, I have some idea of what a judge is likely to do. And so I can help them and, and guide them to get to that position and that resolution. So you give, what, a basic a reality check of some form? Yes, I, I, I try and find out from each party what they think is going to happen if we don't resolve this. Uh, if, we, if it doesn't get resolved, what, what are their options? What are they going to do? And that's the approach that uh, you have to take in mediation. You look at what's called your BATNA, which is the best the best alternative if, you, if you're not to, to a dispute that's not resolved. Right. So uh, if one party thinks that something's going to happen and the other party some thinks there's going to be something different happening, and, they, and one party is completely out of touch with the reality of the court system, I think that it behoves me to tell them and, and, to, and to explain to them that if they don't resolve the matter, here's some judge is going to make a decision and, not, and perhaps neither party will like the decision. I, yeah, I mean, people have a sense that I'm right, they're, the other one's wrong. That's exactly what the other side's saying. They're right and the other side's wrong. That's right. Each party thinks that they're going to persuade the judge to do what they want. And uh, that's not necessarily what's going to happen. But if I can step back a second, I want to explain one one major difference between mediation and litigation that we haven't touched on, and that's the issue issue of, of, of positions. When parties come into a case and they come to a lawyer or they go in front of a judge, the judge wants to know what is what is A the parties are A and B. A what is your position? Mm-hmm. B what is your position? Nobody's looking to find out why their position is what their position is. In mediation, you have the opportunity and the time and, the, and the, the wherewithal to say to the parties, why is your position that? You may find that when you ask the question why, you find that by getting to their interests as opposed to their positions, that you can better able uh, to identify where these people know to go, to go to resolve the case. I don't know if anybody on the show has discussed the classic story of the two girls with an orange. The orange metaphor, we call it. Sorry? It, we, it, some of us call it the orange metaphor. Right. Because it so stands for or represents something else. So I don't know if you want me to repeat that or there's a, uh, a classic story that, ex- that, that shows exactly how that works. The story here is, is there's, there's a mother and two daughters. And the daughters come to the mother and they each ask the mother for an orange. And the mother says to them, sorry, I only have one orange. And they each say they need, they each need one orange. So the mother uh, takes a knife, cuts the orange in half, and gives half to each daughter, which you think is the fair way to resolve this dispute. Right. Well, the mother then looks at the daughters to see what it is that they're going to do with their half. One daughter takes the orange, peels it, throws the peel in the garbage, and eats the orange. The other daughter scoops out the inside of the orange, takes the peel, and uses it to flavor icing on a cake. The rind. The rind. Yeah. So had this mother asked the question, why is this your position to get at their interests, she could have, in fact, given in the entire orange to each of them because one wanted the inside and one wanted the peel. Mm -hmm. So when you're doing a mediation and you're looking to discover what the interests of the parties are, you need to go to the question of why do these people have the position that they have? Why are they taking the position they're taking? Because if you can find out what the position is that they're taking, find out what their real interest is behind it, you can often find that a a dispute can be resolved 
much more easily than simply saying, what's your position, what's your position, and um, going from there. So as a lawyer from your history and now as a mediator and dedicating yourself to that kind of mindset and approach, how do you see the distinction uh, in terms of people with as a lawyer and now with people as a mediator? Do you see people in conflict from the legal perspective different from people in mediation? Yes, from a number of different perspectives. The main one is that when you're a lawyer, you only hear the story from your client. You only know your client's side of the case. You're being hired by that client to pursue a, to pursue a position and to obtain a result for the client that that client might want. You never get to hear the other side of the case because the other side of the case may be completely different. When you're in a mediation, the mediator gets to hear both sides of the story. And, both, and not only does the mediator get to hear both sides of the story, but each party gets to hear the other side's side of the story because they may not even know it. They, they may be in such a conflict that all they've been doing is yelling at each other without understanding what the other side really wants. Yeah, I mean, when conflict happens amongst people, the uh, trust is affected, the communication breaks down, people act as silos, they uh, do things within their own space, in the absence of having meaningful conversation with the other person. And so they make assumptions and judgments, which tend to be, a lot of times, not correct. But the other thing is is that the the, the difference, to go back to your question, between uh, seeing the people from a lawyer's perspective and a mediator's perspective, is that usually people who come to mediation are people who are looking to resolve a matter without getting into a big fight. Mm-hmm. And so most mediations are successful because the people coming to the mediation want to resolve the case. They don't want to. They don't want to fight. They don't want to beat, beat up the other side. They don't want a judge to say yes, you won, no, you won, or no, you're right, or you're right. These parties are coming because they're looking to resolve a matter without there being a right and a wrong. It's it's it's, it's very rare that one person is completely right and one person is completely wrong. Right. I mean, people have contributed not always deliberately, unknowingly, with misinformation sometimes to how the other person sees their behavior. And from that, unfortunately, has made some kind of judgment and assumption. And it's gone down a bad path, for example. Moving into the aging population, and what we're trying to focus on a lot tonight, is as people get older, things change in terms of the individual and also the, the circle of support. What are the things that you're dealing with regarding conflicts involving aging parents, for example? Well, one, of the, one of the big problems is that people don't plan. They wait for a crisis before they do something. So if an aging parent um, is in a situation where they become um, unable to deal with their matters or not to understand what's going on, the time to, do, to deal with that is long before that happens. The time not, it, it, to wait for that to happen is too late. So in the aging population, a lot of planning needs to take place. Uh, children nowadays, and by children I mean p- people in their 60s, mm-hmm. parents in their 80s or 90s, uh, need to plan these things well in advance. And what I found is, is that if I help people uh, in a family conference, and, I, and I, I advocate the idea of families sitting down and talking to each other well before their parents become uh, before a problem arises, and that may be a, a mental problem or a health, a health problem, a physical problem, financial problem, well before those problems occur, 
the family needs to sit down at a family conference and work out what they're likely to do. Uh, the, the, the children might speak amongst themselves. Do, do they intend uh, putting this parent into a home? Do they intend um, hospitalizing this parent? It's, it's too late when a crisis happens. When suddenly you, uh, you get a phone call, the parents drop down on the ground and can't get up. It's too late to sit down and plan something. You have to, at that point, one has to simply just available opportunity to do something and do it. And it may not be the right thing. So I advocate for children, uh, adult children, to sit down and have a family conference and plan what they intend to do. Now, these conferences that I'm suggesting may be very difficult. And they may be difficult because there's long family history. There might be conflict. There might be one child thinks that uh, the parents favor another child over, the, over this child. Some, some daughters may think that their parents uh, look to their sons for help and not their, their, their daughters because their daughters are female. Mm-hmm. There are all sorts of problems that occur in these family meetings, these family conferences that may not allow the parties to properly plan what they do when a situation arises for their elderly parents. So what I look for is to try and help these families in mediation to get a satisfactory family conference. So one of the one of the, the easiest examples to give is um, the situation where uh, the, the the parties may have the, the the elderly parents may own more than one property, and they are not sure uh, how to leave this property, and they will should they leave the property two properties equally to all of their children, or should they leave one property to one child and one property to another child? Mm-hmm. So to come back to this idea of looking at interests as opposed to positions. We need to find out their interests. We need to find out, would it make sense to leave a cottage to a child who hates the country? Probably not, but the parents may think that it's fair to leave to do that. The the other children may not think it's fair, and a family conference would help, perhaps with the help of a mediator, maybe by themselves without a mediator, to work out what should be done, how should this estate be crafted so that the interests of all of the parties are met before a crisis occurs. Right. So for example, if, if an elderly parent uh, becomes mentally incompetent, they're not able to read, write a will. And so there's no point having a conference about what to do with a will because it's too late. And that's why I'm saying do this as soon as possible. Do this as early as possible before a crisis occurs. So on one level, if people have in their family structure and history a template of somewhat collaborating or working together, or minimal kind of negative conflict. That's a great possibility. When there's already history, as you said, that there's a lot of politics going on in the family among siblings, when there's more than one sibling, of course, when there's only one, there's no conflict per se, even though there could be the child having a different interest than what the parents want for anything. But amongst siblings, you, you have a variety of different personalities, right, and different interests. Well, that's right, and as I said, if you don't res- if you don't attack these issues uh, well before a crisis occurs, uh, there could be problems. And um, make make whatever currently exists into a much larger and more costly. Game. That's right. Well, one of the one of the cases that I had sh- uh, a while ago was a case where the children were in their sixties, the parents were in their eighties, the father um, had remarried, the the mother had died of these children, the siblings. Mm-hmm. And the father had remarried. 
and he wanted to make sure that his children would inherit something. Whereas if he left everything to his new wife, who presumably would live longer than him, he'd essentially be leaving everything to her children. Because, because by extension... Yeah, because, because he would die, everything would go to his new wife, and then his new wife would die, and everything would be would go according to her will, which presumably would be to her, to her children. So his own children would be left out of any exactly. potential. Exactly. So these are the kinds of things that need to be addressed well before the problem occurs. If the father ha- ha- was already dead and the money or, tr- or property had been transferred to the new wife, it would be too late to do anything. Right. What we've been talking about, trying to broach and talking about prevention, which would be helpful, because once someone of an older age, you know, they'll experience more medical issues, one of them being mental capacity, the ability to make uh, decisions based on being coherent. And once a person passes through that, and they're no longer able to, then decisions have to be made about their medical care, their welfare, their property. How do people, how do families try to address that, though? Well, the easiest way to do that is in a family conference, with or without a mediator, the parties need to decide uh, whether, who, if um, amongst them, or one maybe, maybe more than one, uh, should have the decision-making powers should a parent become uh, so ill that they need to sign certain documents and releases. So, for example, hospitals decide whether they should resuscitate a patient or not. Uh, they look to see if there's any family member who has a power of attorney, and that person with a, or persons with a power of attorney are able to make a medical decision to resuscitate someone who's unconscious, or they may decide to let the person uh, go. But it's too late to, to, to do that when, uh, when you're in hospital and the parent's now about to die, because at that point, if there's no power of attorney, the doctors have no choice. They have to keep that person alive, and that may not have been the person's wishes or the family's wishes. What happens, though, potentially if there's two siblings and both are assigned as powers of attorney and each has a different perspective about, quote, how to deal with a medical concern for their parent? Well, that, of course, is, is, a, is a major problem, and that's something that we would look to, do, to resolve either in this conference or in mediation because... There's no point giving a power of attorney to two different people who are going to extend the conflict into another arena. It doesn't make any sense. So the same thing exists with property. When you have a power of attorney for property, if if you give a power of attorney to two siblings and one of them says the market is ready, we should sell my father's house, the other one says, no, 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 the market is just about to take off, let's wait another year, you're just extending the conflict into a different forum. So you need to try and work out in a in one of these conferences, what to do in the event that such a conflict should arise. Or they value even the property differently. One looks at it like a business situation, and the other one has more sentimental reasons. They have this history as a child, and it was so important and relevant to how they identify, and it's a connection with their past and also with their parents, and they want to hold on to it. Yet the other sibling says, no, we need to sell it because I want to... It's too costly to keep it going. That's right. Those are exactly the conflicts that, are, that occur and what we look to try and resolve in mediation. So we look to see, for example, we go back to the same question of one parent, one child has a sentimental attachment, the other one is a financial attachment. What are their interests? Their interests, obviously, are this financial attachment and the emotional attachment. So perhaps the way to resolve the case is that the 
person with the emotional attachment might be able to buy their house from the other sibling because the other this this one of the emotional attachment doesn't seem to have a financial contact the other one all they want is the money so if the one with the emotional attachment to the house wants to keep the house perhaps the way to resolve it is that that she buy, or he buys the other one's interest out of in, in the property on a on a, a nice ideal though you know that other person may not have the financial means to do so and then it just aggravates the tension amongst those two siblings well, remember that um, you know mediation is not a uh, wonder drug. It doesn't solve every single dispute. And with the, the parties might be might be told that if the matter is not resolved, all that's going to happen is the property is going to be sold by auction, or you know there's going to be two agents picked and the property is going to be uh, valued and listed and sold. Or they'll each hire lawyers. Well, they they'll take it to court. Spend more money than the house is worth to, right. to fight about it. Yeah, I mean, that's the same context with family stuff. Two people as parents, they have an issue of a child, and then they hire counsel, lawyers, and they end up spending more money through that process that is really at issue or that would be provided for. Right, but when I say for estate planning, one needs to do this as early as possible, I'm looking to, to try and identify these problems long before they occur. I mean, if, for example, if a father and mother know that the siblings are going to fight about this property when they die, they may decide to sell it before they die. Possibly. So you need, but if, but if, but if one of them is incapacitated, it's too late. So that's why I'm saying the earliest possible opportunity to meet and talk about these problems, the better. Ideally, many people are avoiders. They see conflict and they want to run the other way. Right. Or they hope someone else comes in and fixes it for them. So when they see this tension amongst their kids, oh my God, I can't stand it. I don't want it. It, it's, it hurts me. I don't want to take sides. Yet their inaction is an action. That's and right. it creates a whole template of conflict that ferments. Well, remember, mediation is a voluntary process. So nobody can be forced to come to mediation. Nobody can be forced to come to a family meeting. But if there are a number of siblings and there are some who want to come, it may be still beneficial for those who want to come to come. Because maybe as part of this mediation process, the the mediator can help bring the other parties to the table. Because if they're left out of the picture and they're not at the table and they don't have a voice in what's going to happen, they may realize that this is not in their interest. And so what are some of the potential risks or consequences when people don't do something, like the inaction in terms of, let's just say there's no power of attorney and then there's property and then someone one of the siblings has the ability to persuade someone else to get control of the assets. Well, this happens. This this happens quite a lot. Elder abuse of people's property matters. Yes, and I I remember a case uh, a long time ago where a father had given a power of attorney to his son. He had a son and a daughter. And it was one of these old-fashioned uh, men who believed that uh, you know, women shouldn't be involved in financial matters, so he gave the power of attorney to his son. And his son promptly took all of the father's assets and put it into his own bank account. And, of course, this is not what the father intended at all. And so the result was that the, when the father died, the, the, do- the, the sister sued the brother uh, for for stealing the money. Now the problem, of course, is that this made a, a problem even worse because not only did you have 
two people with a dispute, but you now have them forcing them to go to court because that is the only way to, to deal with somebody who had improperly um, taken funds. Which is a growing concern because of the aging population or the percentage of people who are aging and becoming more dominant in terms of their numbers. And so the issues from that are becoming more commonplace, unfortunately. That's right, because as the elderly live longer and longer, it becomes more and more expensive for them to live. So one of the issues that come up in these kinds of cases is uh, what happens if the parents run out of money? Are the children going to support these parents? Are they going to do it equally? Are they going to do it in proportion to their income? What's going to happen? And if you wait for there to be a crisis and there's inaction and there are people who are not willing to do anything, what's going to happen to these aging people? What would be the obligation of a child, though as an adult child, to their older parents? Well, I'm not sure there's a legal obligation, but I think that in most cases in this country, I think that people respect their parents and would want to support their parents and make sure their parents didn't become homeless. Uh, and um, I, w- I would think so. Uh, I don't think you need a, a law to say you have to support adult children, have to support their adult parents. But I would think that most parent, most people would want to make sure their parents uh, weren't left in the street. Mm-hmm. And uh, the problem is, is that if you wait for one of the parents to run out of money before you tackle the problem, it's too late because you need to work on an emergency basis then. You don't have the, the ability to sit down and actually plan something. So with regard to parents, and what if they're no longer together as a couple? So they're separate, and they have their own, quote, property and their own issues. And then there's kids who have a history of being more aligned with one parent than the other parent. And so I I would think there's a lot of potential, you know, interplay that happens amongst the family dynamic when it ends up fracturing. Yes, and uh, that's one of the issues that are dealt with in a family conference or in mediation because sometimes people want to leave their estates unequally. They may say to themselves, um, I've got two children, one of them is very rich, one of them is struggling. I think I should leave more to the one who's struggling. And that may be a potential problem because we psychologists tell us, and I think that everybody's experience tells them, that if one of the children inherits less than the other one, they feel less valued. They feel that their parents love the other one more and uh, wanted to somehow uh, give this one less because they didn't love them as much. It may not be a financial matter. The other thing is is that when the person does the will and they have one rich uh, child and one poor child, by the time they die, the rich child may have gone bankrupt. And then then what would have happened? The the poor child would be getting more and the the rich child who's who's now bankrupt would be getting nothing. So these issues are, are issues that come up in many families and every family deals with it differently because every family has a different history uh-huh. and a different dynamic and a different relationship. But the most important thing is communication. The most important thing is having a family conference well before the event occurs. And if the family conference is unsuccessful, look to somebody else to help the parties arrive at an agreement. So if people don't have this kind of template where they actually have effective communication in the family, yet they need to make some major decisions about the welfare, the aging transition of the parents before they reach the point where they're not able to make that kind of decision. How do you convince or get people to 
the family members to participate in the family conference. Well, as I said before, I think that if some of the family members are willing to participate and some are not, mm-hmm. that if the ones who are not are, are you want to find out why they're not. Are they not participating because they're uh, people who don't want to tackle conflict? Or do they not want to deal with it because they think everything is going to simply work out on its own? Or do they think that they, they need, don't need to worry because their parents know what they're doing and they'll take care of everything? So once you found that out, that may be of some assistance because if the ones don't want to participate because, for example, they they just want people who want to tackle problems, if they learn that in fact someone else is going to decide for these parents what to do with their property, someone else is going to decide what to do with their health care, and someone else may inherit more than they do, this may change their interests and it may bring them to the table. So if people, parents, and they have kids, and then they die without a will. Yes. So intestate. So what's the, the general course of action that? Uh well, the problem with dying intestate, that is without a will, is that you there's no there's no uh, choice. One has simply has to follow the legislation, and there's a legislative scheme that exists saying a surviving spouse would inherit so much, a surviving child would inherit so much, and there would have to be an administrator appointed by the court instead of there being an executor. So it means it becomes much more expensive. It means you have to have a lawyer, you have to go to court, you have to deal with all of these matters that can be simply dealt with in a will. And wills are, are very easy to do. In fact, uh, in our system, which is the English legal system, uh, a person can draft their own will uh, without witnesses just by writing it out in, in their own handwriting, signing it and dating it. I don't need a witness. I don't need to be typed. They don't, need, they don't need any magical words. They can simply say, this is my last will. I appoint so-and-so to be my executor, and I leave my estate as follows. Sign it, date it. That's their will. They right. don't need to go through a whole rigmarole of, of, of going to a lawyer, paying a lawyer, getting... I mean, if you've got tax tax planning that you need, and you've got a complicated financial structure, of course you need legal advice. But if you're a person who's got very little assets and uh, very little to, to argue about with, with Canada, with Revenue Canada once you die, a straightforward will is not a problem. I mean, I'm not, I don't want to in any way give legal advice to anybody. Uh, this is simply giving legal information, mm-hmm. but I'm suggesting that, uh, I'm simply suggesting that dying without a will is the worst thing that you, not the worst thing that you can do, but it's a, it's a, it's a thing that you can easily rectify because wills are so easy to do. So dying without a will is, a, is not a good idea. Right. I know you're presenting options here. You're not directing people. What should they do? So we're talking legal information, just to clarify for the listener's benefit. Um, in terms of creating that kind of document, people would leave it somewhere that's accessible in the event that they're passing away so that someone can find that. That's right. They should usually leave it with their important documents. So they may have life insurance policies. They may have bank statements. They may have old income tax returns because someone's going to have to do a tax return when they die for the estate. So the will should be one of the documents that's kept with that. And if there's an executor named or, or executors who are named, the executors should be told where to find the will. There's no point having a will if nobody can have access to it. I know they wrote one. I, I recall they told me they did. Right. I just we can't find it. And then meanwhile, someone pops up, says they're a relative, and you know, it's 
going to create a scenario that's not going to be that smooth. That's right. That's why I'm saying we need to put it in a place that's obvious. So you, you talked about Will's uh, executor. What does an executor actually do? An executor is the person who everybody leaves their estate to. So the owner of your property becomes the legal property of the executor who holds it in trust for the beneficiaries of the estate. But before the trustee, before the executor pays the money out to the beneficiary, the executor's job is to file the final income tax return for the estate, pay all of the taxes, pay any debts that the estate may be owing, and and collect any money that's owing to the deceased party. And then once they've done that, uh, they also then have decision-making powers over certain things. Often what they've given power of is to decide when to sell property or when not to sell property because it's obviously advantageous to the estate to sell a property when the market is up. And uh, so uh, some discretion is given to executives in wills to decide when to sell certain assets and what assets to hold or how to invest them while one's waiting for the market uh, to get better. And then once all of the property is being liquidated, Mm -hmm. the executive's job is then to divide it up amongst the beneficiaries. Okay, so obviously the more uh, property or assets that a, a person has, it would be more advisable to create a will. Of course, yes. Yeah. No, no question about it. And it would also be advisable to make sure that you pick an executor who you have absolute trust in because that uh, executor is going to be uh, dealing with the estate and making decisions that you would have made where you were alive. And therefore, you need to pick somebody who is like-minded to you, mm-hmm. who you trust, and uh, who um, makes sense to pick to administer this estate. It doesn't always have to be a family member either, does no, it? No, it could be your lawyer. It could be the, uh, a trust company. It could be an insurance company. Mm-hmm. Um, but usually people pick family members because uh, it's cheaper. It's somebody you trust, and there's very little um, yellow tape. Right, though as we referred to earlier, if especially if there's more than one sibling, there's a potential risk that if they're not on the same page about matters, decision-making-wise, that will, by extension, create more conflict. That's right, and not only with respect to the decision-making, it might also create conflict as to why was this child picked as executor and not that child? Did they, did they love me more? Did they trust me more? Why, why did they choose that one and not another one? Right, and, and no matter how old we are, as we're always children of our parents. So right. we could be 60 or 65 or 70, yet we still want to be loved by our parents. That's correct, and that's why you, you need to make sure that the estate is left in a fair manner and the executor is chosen in a fair manner, and that you don't uh, uh, die leaving a, a conflict behind and yeah. if, you can, if you can resolve these matters before, mm-hmm. uh, as I said in a family conference, and everybody knows exactly where they stand, there are not going to be any surprises. Everybody has input as to what's going to happen. Uh, it's much more likely to be a conflictless estate. You know, talking about, we have to almost close out the show soon. What do people need to do to better prepare for dealing with conflicts involving aging parents or family members? Well, of course, communication is the most important thing. And it's uh, the most important thing is to make sure that uh, if you're going to go into a conflict, that you're looking to 
do what's best for everybody and uh, you're looking to identify the interests and try and satisfy everybody's interest in that uh, in that mediation. And, and for me, this is something, in terms of my mother, because that's the one who was around longest for me, I didn't want to see her age to get older because it's like, hey, I want her forever. It's an ideal, of course. Reality, fine. So we're in denial. And with denial, there's avoidance. And so with avoidance, you know, it nurtures a whole and it festers about conflict. But that's why I'm saying that it's the, 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 the reason for this, for problems to exist in the states is because of avoidance, because of the inability to sit down and work out what's likely to happen. I mean, everybody, unfortunately, it's a fact of life that everybody's going to die. It's a question of we hope that they'll live as long as possible, but nobody's going to live forever, and everybody's going to die at some point. And so to avoid it makes little sense. It's a really irrational way to approach it, and that's why I'm suggesting do the family conference, do it as soon as possible, don't delay, don't avoid, don't wait until there's an emergency, don't wait until you're in a position where you have no choice. And I would qualify with you know the eventuality of our passing. It's unexpected, too. You never know when it's going to happen. We don't have it pre-planned for the most part. That's right. So the unexpected. The one thing that we haven't discussed and I think that we should spend a minute discussing is mediations for disputes where a person's died. Because often you, you, you're in a situation where someone's died and there's a conflict between the parties because they feel that the father or the mother, whoever it was, would never have done this if they were rational and therefore they must have signed the will while they were uh, incompetent. And so you find that one party may challenge the will and say, I want to challenge the validity of this will because I don't believe that my parent would have left more money to my sibling than to me or would have left my sibling the executor and not both of us. Mm -hmm. And so often what happens is that I see cases in mediation where parties are in a conflict after the person has died. And the mediator's role then is to try and help the parties come to a resolution uh, of how to, how to deal with these matters. Because remember, a will is simply the wishes of the deceased. The parties themselves aren't necessarily uh, stuck with what's in that will. If they decide to do something else because they think that something in the will is unfair, that's up to them. The same way that if a party separates in a, in a divorce and the law says one person gets one thing and one person gets another thing, if they don't have to follow what the law says if they think it's unfair, they can decide how to resolve it themselves in mediation. So in mediation, you can resolve disputes even after someone's died. Right, yes. And especially if there's an interest to somehow maintain, sustain, or reconnect the relationship amongst family members after the passing of someone. That's right, because you may, you, 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 I've often heard stories about somebody who hasn't spoken to their brother for 30 years, but they can't remember why. Mm -hmm. And these kinds of disputes go on and on, and they, once they start, they, they're impossible to resolve. And so the, the sooner this family uh, uh, settlement meeting is held, the better to avoid these kinds of things. So what suggestions in closing can you provide or ask of people in terms of better organizing and preventing some of the conflicts associated with aging? Well, I think that uh, if there are siblings involved and there are a number of children involved, I think that they need to sit down and communicate. They need to talk about what do they see in the future? What do they see happening? How do they see this playing out? How do they see their parents being taken care of? 
I mean, you may you may also have conflicts, for example, uh, where a grandparent is being denied access to a grandchild. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you, you, you need to resolve all of these things in some kind of a family settlement meeting or in mediation. These are not matters that should be left to a judge to decide, and they shouldn't be matters that are simply avoided, because the longer they're avoided, the more entrenched they get, the more entrenched they get, the harder they are to resolve. So I, I keep coming back to saying the same thing over and over. Do it as soon as possible. Hold a family meeting as early as possible. There's never a limit in trying to suggest and support people in terms of a different process that's more inclusive and considerate of the uh, the needs of families and individuals. So I want to thank you very much for coming tonight. we got to close up. Thanks for having me. All right. Appreciate the conversation. You've been listening to Mediation Station on CHHA, 1610 AM, Voices Latinas.